you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail, fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So we begin with the verse, verse 11, where we finished last week. We did cover this verse at the end of the sermon, but it is so significant in the letter that the author of Hebrews writes here. It is the close of the previous section, and it is also the introduction of the new section. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. And I want to just re-emphasize to you again, going back to chapter 4, verse 1, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So we're going to talk extensively about the warning that is present within verses 12 and 13. But as the backdrop of your mind, what should be in your mind is that the whole reason this warning makes sense, the whole reason why we're called to strive is because the promise of entering his rest still stands. The promise is that those who believe do, in fact, enter the rest of God. It's a real promise. It's a real guarantee. Those who believe do enter the rest of God. If you believe in Jesus, if he is your trust, he is the one that you have put your hope and your confidence in, you do, in fact, enter that rest. So if you're here this morning, you don't know what in the world I'm even talking about at this point. What does it even mean to trust in Jesus? What does that feel like? What does that look like in my mind? What is the rest of God? I have no experience in my life or heart that could even be similar to that at all. You need to meet Jesus. You need to trust in Him. You need to put your hope in Jesus. And you will enter that rest. That's the gospel offer. Most messages end with a gospel invitation. I'm giving it to you right now. In this moment, even though we're not having a nice organized uh, invitation or anything like that, this is between you and the Lord. Trust in Jesus and you will enter that rest. That should form the backdrop of your mind as we proceed. Without understanding the gravity of that invitation, the fact that the Son of God Himself has extended this offer to you to enter the very rest of God, then you can't appreciate what we're about to say. Then in verse 11, the author uses this word, strive. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We discussed last week that this word strive, his his choice of the word strive certainly makes sense within the context of what he's already said, but it doesn't really fit with what we're told to believe and think and feel today. Because we strive for a lot of things, I don't know that striving to enter God's rest is one of them. Is not salvation a sure thing? We talked a lot about this concept of rest, God's rest, over the past few weeks. So we can't get ourselves off the hook of this. He's not talking about some higher life or deeper experience of God. When he, when he says rest. It's not just something that is optional for you. Well, you can be a Christian, but you don't know this rest. You haven't entered God's rest, or you won't really enter God's rest, but you're still a Christian. He's talking about entering heaven, the kingdom of God, being welcomed into God's final rest, the final Sabbath. Heaven is where God is. If you want to be there, this is what the invitation is to enter his rest. So we can't let ourselves off the hook. We can't be lazy. We can't just say, well, that sounds really nice. This striving sounds appealing for those who are extra spiritual or maybe those who are professional Christians, but it's not something I want to do. It's not something I have the time for, this striving I could just believe in Jesus and things are okay. I could just take care of that on one day in my life and then be good for the rest. As your pastor, as your brother in Christ, as your friend, I'm exhorting you to strive. How does Jesus say it? We've mentioned this verse multiple times over the last few weeks. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. That Jesus is not welcome in many churches today. The Jesus who says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, one day, I tell you, will seek to enter and won't be able. So you make sure you're one of the ones who strive now to enter through that narrow door door. That's my concern for you. And I can't, as I've said multiple times, and maybe it's something that has made you chuckle, I can't hold a black light over you and know whether or not you're safe. I can judge you by your fruit, the results of your life. I can be a spiritual fruit inspector and say, uh, maybe, maybe not. Yes, in some cases. But regardless, I'm urging you, I'm urging myself to be one of the ones who strive now Today, why must we strive for something that is a sure thing? If you were here during our Sunday school hour, we talked at length about this idea of perseverance, that God's power sustains and keeps people who trust in Jesus to the end. It is a sure thing. God can never fail in something that he sets out to do. It's impossible for God to fail. As we'll see later in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews teaches this. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, meaning his death on the cross, he has perfected for all time 
those who are being saved. This phrase, being saved or being sanctified, is so very important in our thinking. It's very important as we understand what God has done in us and for us and through us for our own salvation. We must strive to enter this rest precisely because it is the work of God in us to make us the kind of people who eagerly wait and prepare to enter God's rest. The example throughout this entire analysis in chapter 4 has been comparing the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to to the children of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. Okay? So imagine that you're one of the Israelites when Joshua and Caleb and the ten other spies from the ten other tribes come back and give the report and they say, it's a good land, we, there, it's, it's beautiful, there's grapes, look at how we had to gather our strength together to even carry these grapes to you. It's a really great land, but there's giants in the land and we'll be crushed by them. We can't take the land. God won't keep his promise for us. That is the counterpoint here to striving. Joshua and Caleb were appealing to the children of Israel, let us strive to enter that rest. What would it have been like? How absurd would it have been if you were an Israelite and you said, well, I truly believe in Joshua and Caleb's report that it is a good land and God is able to give it to us, but I refuse to go in and take it. I'll stay here on this side of the Jordan. I'm not going to obey and go take it. God could have, if he had wanted to, he's powerful enough, or he could have just instantaneously dispatched all the Canaanites and said, come into the land, it's empty. Take possession of all the cities, all these towns. You don't have to even unsheathe any of your swords or draw one arrow, it's yours. That's not how he did it. His command is, believe in me, trust in me, I will give you the land, you go in and take it. It's all by his power, it's all by his wisdom that it became theirs, it's all by his leadership that it happened, but it was still their responsibility to go in and take the land. This absurdity of insisting to stay on this side of the Jordan and say, no, I trust God, but I'm not going to go in and take it. Think if Abraham had said the same thing. I believe in God. I know that he's all powerful and all trustworthy, but I'm not going to leave the city of Ur or the city of Haran. I'm going to stay here. That would have been absurd. Or I know that he's God. I know that he's good. I trust him, but I'm not going to give up my son. Can you imagine David saying, I believe that the Lord is God, and it's cool that Nathan anointed me as king, but I don't want to serve as king of Israel. This should bring clarity to the anger that God has towards Moses when he does not want to go up. He sees God represented in the burning bush. He hears him declare his name to him. And Moses says, eh, I don't know. I don't want to go. Can't you find someone else? That's why God was angry. 
Because that's the point where God has done all the work to reveal himself to Moses, show him his power, and Moses says, "Uh, no, I'm good. This should bring clarity even to one of the big mysteries, as people call it, of how to reconcile James and Paul. When James says, faith without works is dead. If you say you believe in Jesus and you say, ah, I don't care to strive to enter that rest. I don't have to obey. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that he's coming back, but I don't, I'm not going to do anything more about it. That faith can't save you. That faith is dead. So for us today, we say, I believe in Jesus. I want to go to heaven one day, but I don't want to seek the kingdom first. Or I believe in Jesus. I want to go to heaven, but I don't really care that much about learning his word or bringing his word to people. Or I believe in Jesus. I want to go to heaven one day, but I really don't want to commit to make prayer a priority in my life, in the life of my family. Or I believe in Jesus, I want to go to heaven one day, but I really don't want to commit my life to love and exhort other people to do the same. Jesus will deny you to the Father and refuse to be your Savior if this is the kind of faith you have. That faith is dead. So he says, strive. And it's not all warning and severity that is built into this word, strive. The idea that we all strive is that we strive imperfectly. There are no superheroes here among us. There are no professional Christians. There's no one who's got it all down. We are called to be holy and perfect, but none of us will be. John says in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. All of us, if we truly believe in the Lord, will find ourselves praying like the Father did, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, I do believe, I trust you, Lord, help my unbelief. And we will echo with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I give thanks to Jesus Christ, my Lord. The nature of the striving that we're called to, going back to the example of the nation of Israel, is one of obedience, trusting in the Lord. And precisely not trusting ourselves. Do you remember what happened when they started to trust in themselves? They said, okay, God, we'll obey you, but we're not going to listen to what you said about not going in. We'll go in and try to take the land ourselves. What happened? A lot of them died. Because God said, no, you have rejected my promise. You haven't believed in me. Now you're trusting in yourself. I'm not going to give you success. I won't let you enter my rest. We have another example in the life and ministry of Jesus. When Thomas hears that Lazarus is dead 
And Jesus has delayed, and the disciples say, well, if he's fallen asleep, because Jesus says our, bro- our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and they say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he's probably going to get better then, because sleep helps you heal, right? And Jesus says to them plainly then, our friend Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad we haven't gone yet, because I wanted you to witness this power and so believe. And then they're afraid because the reason they were hiding out is because the Jews were already trying to kill Jesus. So Thomas just says, all right, let's just follow Jesus because if he dies, we'll die with him. So you can even walk in outward appearance of what looks like obedience without trusting at all in the power of God. Does that make sense? You can have all of the outward appearances of a faithful Christian, but in no way in your heart believe that God will be faithful. It's more of a, I'll just live this way because if it turns out all to be true, then I'll end up on the right side of history, but I'm not sure if it really is. And then he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is a warning, and this text serves as a warning because of the implication of how the command here is structured. He says, This striving is meant to prevent you or prevent any of you from falling by the same sort of disobedience. This warning needs to be understood in its plural context or else many errors will occur it's not you by yourself striving in this life of faith-filled obedience that he's calling you to you have been given a massive amount of assistance in this striving you can look to your left and to your right in front of you and behind you these are the people that God has put in your life if you're a member of this church If you're part of the family here, these are the people that God has put in your life to help you strive to enter that rest. As the preacher says, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. You cannot and should not try this alone. He says that no one of you, that not any one of you may fall by the same disobedience. This striving is for ourselves, but it is also a striving that we're supposed to have towards other believers. The author of Hebrews has pastoral concern for his hearers. He never specifically identifies what this alluring sin to them is that is leading them to fall away or might lead them to fall away from Christ. But he is concerned that it's beginning to happen. Precisely because he sees no striving. He looks at his congregation that he loves deeply. And where there should be striving, he sees laziness, tiredness. Where there should be zeal for the word of God, he sees distraction. Where there should be holding fast to Christ, he sees clinging to personal agenda or security. 
where there should be exhorting one another, he sees bickering and fighting. Where there should be love and trust, he sees suspicion and closing each other off from one another. Where he should see devotion to prayer, he sees gossip, self-promotion, and commitment to convenience. Where he should see a commitment to meeting together, he sees temporary and inconsistent toleration of each other. Where he should see confession of sin, he sees hiding and fear and judgment. To the young people in this room, maybe if the author of Hebrews were to look at us, he would see the same things and might see these things with our young people. Where there should be respect and honor of your parents, he sees mockery, disobedience, bad attitudes. Where there should be a growing knowledge of the Lord, you're growing in the knowledge of your favorite games, movie franchises, or superstars. I say this as a person who loves games, movies, and some bands. Where he should see wanting to be holy, he sees wanting to be popular. Where he should see loving the Bible, you love your shows. Where he should see wanting to be like Jesus, he sees you wanting to be yourself. These are questions and challenges that I can help you ask, but only you and the Lord can answer them by looking at the perfect mirror of God's word. The concern the author of Hebrews feels is rooted in this. He says the promise, this, this is from one of the commentaries I read, the promise This promise of entering his rest, this promise can be forfeited through a careless and hardened disposition. This should take us back to the broader promise of entering his rest and why we took a whole sermon several weeks ago to talk exclusively about the kingdom of God. Do you see it? Do you see the kingdom of God? Do you want it? Do you want it for your children, for your friends? Do you agree with Joshua and Caleb? It is a good land, and the Lord will give it to us. So let's go and take it. The goodness and peace of that land and the joy that will be ours when we reach it is part of what should compel us to strive to enter it. As the old hymn says, or all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God, the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Yes. Brothers and sisters, it is a good land, and it is, and it is there for the taking. Who will seek the kingdom of God first and prepare the way 
of the Lord. So this is the big why. This is why we should strive because the land is a good land and the Lord is faithful and true and he has given us his spirit to empower us to go out and take it and to bring many others in with us. That's why we should strive. But there's another why. We've talked about the why in the future sense. But there can be a why looking backwards as well. And that's what verses 12 through 13 are. For, because, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is active. The word of God is living. This phrase intensifies the warning. Why should we strive to enter his rest? Because the word of God that has come to you, that has commanded you to do this very thing, is alive. Many people go to this text and they just use it to only talk about the Bible and what the Bible is. But the whole reason this passage has weight, he's calling his people to this severity of life, this wartime mentality, this striving because of the word of God being this way. God says through the prophet Isaiah, so shall my word be. That goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You can go all the way back to the beginning points of our universe. God speaks. And what he speaks happens. Jesus in the wilderness and his attitude towards the word of God, when the enemy tries to tempt him to turn stones into bread, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The word of God in front of you is the way you come to know this promise of entering his rest. Where do we hear the promise? The word of God. Just like the children of Israel, hearing the word of the Lord on Mount Sinai and having it prophesied to them through Moses. It's in the word of God. The promise of God that you can know in this book in front of you or on your device, or however you're consuming it, will for you and offers for you the power to make it through any difficulty and circumstance you face. When God says, I will give you the land, that is what should have for all the people who are on the east side of the Jordan carried with them and used as motivation to go in and follow through with obedience. Are you familiar with God's promises? 
that for anyone who makes a sacrifice for the kingdom will not receive a hundredfold in this lifetime and a hundred and a thousandfold in the life to come. That's a promise from God. We don't have time to go through all the promises, but the question still hangs over you. Do you know the promises of God and what is available to you to shape and mold your heart and give you energy and motivation to go into the darkness that is the future and conquer it for the sake of the king? Where do we hear the warnings For those who have stopped striving and stopped clinging to Christ, it's in the word of God. Have you read these warnings? Do you know what they are? Do you just count on it all coming to you in 45 to 55 minutes from me on a weekly basis? We are told to not fear anything that is frightening precisely because we have a clear picture of the gravity and grandeur of God in his word. It is him that we should ought to fear. Just as an example, he says, fear not those that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When you are gripped by the fear of God, all other fears melt away in comparison and it makes you bold and courageous for all of life. Maybe the reason Many of you have a haze of confusion and a lack of clarity in life is because you lacked wisdom. And you lack wisdom because you'll not pursue her wisdom by the way that the Bible commands. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The way you meet the Lord is in his word. How do we learn the fear of the Lord? How are we taught in its ways? How are we shown what that means in his word? Where do we meet the great high priest of this new covenant? The word of God. The only way you have to know the one who is the living word himself is God's written word. You must not get it the other way around. The right way is to see the Bible as the means through which you find Jesus. The main reason you should want to enter God's rest is because that's where Jesus is. And the Bible is where you meet him. The Bible's purpose is to reveal Christ to you. This is how John says it at the close of his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. These things are written so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ. Do you treat it that way? Do you treat the Bible like the place you meet Jesus, the Son of God? Paul says to Timothy, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ, because this is where you meet Jesus. Not some high, lofty spiritual experience here in these words. One of my 
favorite Christian music authors is uh, David Crowder, and he has this song, the beginning of one of his albums, and it's basically just one sentence. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I think more accurately, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to read the Bible. Be the exception. Be the exception to that. The Bible is where you meet the Savior, where you come to know Him, where you are able, to, where you are made to be wise for salvation, where you're able to find life in His name. Do you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God? The I Am, the Lord of the armies of heaven, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things. Every atom, not person who's named Adam, but every single atom, A-T-O-M, in the universe is being sustained by his will and power right now. And this is what he said to you. Young people, kids, do you treat the book in front of you like the treasure that it really is? Is it more precious to you than your favorite than if your favorite celebrity wrote a book just to you? Imagine that. Is it more necessary to you in your heart than your very food? Most of us, if we miss one meal or two meals, we give all the excuses of why we're being a terrible person, right? Well, I'm sorry, I'm being angry and frustrating and all this stuff. I missed breakfast or I missed lunch or I haven't had food in a while. We treat food as so important and it's regular for us to make all these procurements to make sure we have enough food. Is the Bible, young people, more important to you than your food? Would going a day without it be felt as painfully as if you went a whole day without food? Parents, do you set an example to your children to think of and live around the word of God rightly? Is your home life characterized by the centrality and the living nature of the word of God? God says, these words that I command you this day shall be on your heart and you will teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Is that your home? You might say, but I don't want to be that parent. I don't want to be the parent that, you know, we go to eat at a restaurant and the waitress comes by and fills my cup and I say to them, well, did you know that Jesus could become for you a flowing river of water out of your heart, right? You don't want to be that parent that makes everything awkward and about a Bible verse. But there is a right way to do this. And the right way is to first delight in the word of God yourself. And invite your children to join you in that delight. This happens all the time. Every parent, without exception, has a sports team, a set of movies or activities that they like to do, and they work to invite their children into those things. This indoctrination happens all the time because the parents 
delight in things and they invite their children to join them in that delight. That's how the word of God should be in your homes. David says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Is that your heart towards the Bible? Open my eyes, pleading with the Lord to give you spiritual sight so that you might see wondrous things in his law. The ministry, this this doesn't just apply to the home life, to young people and parents. Our main feature, the main thing that we offer to the world is the word of God. We really don't have anything else. And we should major on nothing else. Think about the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of the apostles, and especially Paul. He validates his own ministry and says that his conscience is clear in his dealings with the church at Ephesus because he did not shrink from declaring to them the entire counsel of the word of God. When I stand before God and answer for how I served as a minister, the main question will be is, what did you do with my word and did you give it to my people? This is how Jesus speaks to Peter when he reinstates him. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The word of God must be sent. And we can, by all the good motives, distract from that. Even in the preaching, I try to contain no gimmicks, no fancy marinades, no expensive side garnishes, no shortcuts, no cutting corners, no crutches. No being embarrassed by the flavor of the original ingredients. Just solid food. This flows out into doctrine, and this this is how Paul says it to Timothy. Keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And he also says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. God desires to show his own sufficiency by sanctifying his word. Think about that. Let me say that again. God desires to show his own sufficiency by sanctifying the power of his word. This happens all throughout scripture. When the word of God is read and embraced, that's when God chooses to bring change. You can think of the story of Josiah. You can think of the story of Nehemiah, the Thessalonians. And even in church history, Augustine, one of the great theologians in church history, was in a pit of despair, as it were, and just depression and being fraught with sin and finding no clear way out. And he overhears a child singing, take it and read, take it and read, and picks up Paul's letter to the Romans and reads chapter 13, verse 13. And that's how God chooses to save him. That's where conversion happens. When we distract from the word of God, then that takes credit and glory away from God's word. God chooses to bring life and change and peace through his word. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged 
sword. And the author now begins to show us exactly how his word is living and active. The word is living and active because it's sharp. Be careful. It's sharp. You can use it wrongly and hurt yourself and hurt others. It may seem odd to call something that's so beautiful and life-giving sharp, deadly, comparing it to a weapon. But this sword of the Spirit is wielded against the strongholds of sin in our lives and in the lives of others. And if you have not been pierced by it, if you have not been pierced by the Word of God, if it has not brought you low, if it does not cut deep into your heart and exposed darkness, then you're not reading it correctly or frequently enough, or you're forgetting it very quickly after reading it. And this is a very serious problem. The only solution is that the Spirit of God would prepare our hearts and enable our hearts as we read His Word to see it rightly. Just as David prays, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. They're already there. The penetrating work and power of this sword of the Spirit is there. But our eyes can be closed, our hearts can be calloused, and we aren't willing to be changed by what it shows in us. If the net result of the Word of God is that you're able in your heart to well up in pride and look down on others and come to a point where you think you have it all together, you're not encountering the Word of God rightly. Your pride has blunted the edge or cast away the parts that make you feel uncomfortable. And what you have now in your mind as the Word of God is an abomination. The majority of human emotions, stances, and personality traits even, causes and passions are unacceptable in the light of all the truth of God's Word. It's living and active because it's sharp. And then he also says, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. The wrong way to treat this text, and many do this, is to get distracted by the use of soul and spirit and try to go down the route of anthropology. What is this saying about humans? That we have a soul and a spirit? That's a distraction. The point is that the Word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit. Soul, who you are in and of yourself, and spirit, all that God is working in you. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Here the idea is the Word of God is so sharp that it can show you what in you is natural and what is of yourself and what is of the Lord. Not just the difference between sin and righteousness. Not just the difference between what is holy and unholy, but the division between what is from you and what is from the Lord. How do you know if the Lord is speaking to you or guiding you or leading you in a certain way? If it is confirmed by Scripture. Because Scripture pierces to the division of soul and spirit. Of joints and marrow. 
So you have the joints which are rigid and hard and the marrow which is soft and life-giving. That The Word of God pierces to the vision of that and shows you which is which. I recently had to cut one of the trees in my, the only tree in our yard, both the front and back. I had to trim our tree. And what I realized as I was using my chainsaw to cut off these branches that were low and hanging is that I was cutting off the very best branches. They were the largest, they were the strongest, but they were in the way. And that can be the effect of this sharp sword in your life that God may be asking you to do away with to cut off the very best parts of yourself. Not literally, but you may cling to something. This is my best trait. This is my best talent. This is my dream. This is my passion. This is the thing I want. This is the thing I plan for. You might need to cut that off. It might have gotten you to where he got you to this point, but to progress further to the upward call of Christ, you might have to let the word of God lop that off. And that's painful. It's not fun. And that is the very number one reason why I think we all fall short of treating this book the way we ought to. Because we know that it cuts. And it hurts. The Word of God is living and active because it pierces and severs at the deepest level in ways that seem impossible. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart the Word of God exposes what we are and what we're really thinking and what our motives really are. We don't like what it says about us. That's another reason why we don't treat it like it ought to be treated in our lives because the Bible, more than us reading it, it reads us and tells us who we are. And we don't like the picture. Often, it has been the case. If there has been any type of sin I've been dealing with, I avoid those passages that specifically call my actions against that sin. Anyone else? When you're dealing with something, when there is an area of darkness in your life that you intentionally avoid those passages or you sense like, oh, this book or that chapter really speaks to this issue I'm dealing with. Yeah, I'm not going to read it. The very passages that make us uncomfortable and challenge our understanding and our view of ourselves and God are the very passages that we should return to over and over and over. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. But our very life depends on it. The end result of an honest reading of the Bible is this. I am wrong. God is right. I am selfish. God is loving and commands that I love like Him. I am unworthy. God is all worthy and commands that I find my worth in His Son. I am not wise. God is all wise and commands that I fear Him and that that will be the beginning of wisdom. My sin is great and God requires repentance. I have no rights. God gives mercy and requires that I approach Him not on the basis of rights, but in, on the basis of 
mercy. I don't love enough. Jesus is my example, and I ought to love like him. I don't care enough. Jesus commands that I care for everyone. I don't understand. God, guide me to understand your truth. I am weak. God is able to sustain me. I am unable to do all of this by your spirit. Lord, help me. That's the posture of the heart that has truly encountered God in his word. The word of God is living and active because the result as we read it is that it brings us to read ourselves and shows us who we really are. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Notice the shift. This is stunning. He's been talking about the word of God. It, right? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. It's the word of God. And then he shifts immediately and said, and no creature is hidden from his sight. The truth of God's word is not geographically limited to the people who have it or the people who it came from. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the English-speaking people who have translated it. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword because it's the Word of God Himself. And when it speaks, He speaks. The Bible is authoritative over all because it is the words of the I am. Not only that, there is no creature hidden from the word of God. Not just knowledge or accountability. It's not just that this is the message that we'll all be tried against and why Jesus and his shed blood on our behalf is the only way we enter that rest. But no creature is hidden from his sight. He sees you. He's not just aware. It's not just his infinite knowledge. He sees you. And this is why the truth about the God of Christianity is most offensive. He looks and sees you and perceives you face to face and knows exactly who you are, what you are, what your motives are, what's truly in here. When someone looks at you, you don't know who they are and they just start staring at you. We feel offensive. We, we feel offended, and it's offensive to do that to people. It's even rude to stare. We, we tell our children that. It's rude to stare. Because we sense an invasion into our personal privacy. God sees you. He looks. He knows. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And here's how the author ties it all back to this promise of entering his rest and why we should strive to enter God's rest. One day, you will give an account, not on the basis of some human concept of justice, but on the basis of this. You are fully exposed. All of your shameful thoughts and actions. He knows it all. That's terrifying, but it's also 
massively encouraging that the one who sees you and knows you better than you know yourself, he knows you in the ways that if everyone else in this room knew you in that way that he does, no one would want to be your friend. If we knew the truth about each other in the way that God knows the truth about us, we wouldn't be friends. But God knows it. He sees it. He sees you. And yet, the promise of entering his rest still stands at great cost to himself. He has made the way open. The door has not yet been shut. So strive to enter that rest. The end goal of this work of the sword of the Spirit is to bring us to our knees, abandoning our own pride and self-sufficiency and our way of seeing things. The things we're so convinced of and to say, I was wrong. I am wrong and I will be wrong. Only God is right. In that posture, in that place of humility, we're ready to receive Jesus. Without that posture of lowness and humility, Jesus just becomes a side item in your life or a life coach or just a friend or a cosmic butler like Jarvis or Alfred in helping you get through life. The net effect What should happen when we read the written word of God is to bring us to the end of ourselves and embrace Jesus Christ. So friends, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but come to the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word again. We know because of its cutting and penetrating power that this couldn't be a book merely of human origin. We are encouraged by its living and active nature that it is, in fact, the very word of God. I ask, Father, even though it is so uncomfortable, such an unpleasant experience, I ask that you would bring us low. And it would be simultaneously standing in fear, but standing in hope because the one who sees us and knows our worst has yet held the offer open to us. In love, he has opened the way and the way is not yet shut. I pray for those in this room who do not know you who have not embraced Jesus as the only way that we can enter your rest and to know him, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray as we leave this room that the word of God would become more of a centerpiece in our lives and in our homes, that it would be the centerpiece of the ministry here at North Star, that we would go out and faithfully bring your word your living and active word to people. Help us take advantage of all the opportunities to do so. In the short and long of it, Lord, I pray that you change us. You make us more like Jesus.
Make your word for us our very food. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.